Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome, listeners, to this week's episode of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Patch, and with me, as always, is my best friend and co-host, Aaron. I'm a champion of the world! But he's not pretty, ladies and gentlemen. Let's get that oh. out of the way. <laughs> but you know who is pretty, Patrick. I do know who's pretty. The one alongside him, our fellow critic and co-host, Coles Davis. Good evening, and um, thank you for the opening compliment. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> you got to own it, Coles. If you're gonna be, if you're gonna be the greatest or pretty, you got to own it. <laughs> hey, but I'm, I'm, I'm coolly confident with the ease of confidence I'm holding it that way. Yeah, you're more of a Sam Cooke kind of guy, I think. Cool hand. Cool. cool hand. Oh, oh, cool hand. Okay, you can be that too. That's good. Well, this week we are excited to talk about spoiler alert: my favorite movie of 2020. One Night in Miami, written by Kent Powers of recent soul fame, and for the first time in the director's chair, Regina King. Before we get into the full discussion of the film, we will start, at, as always, with our one-word takeaways. Kales, lead us on, my brother. Heroes. Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali, Sam Cooke, and Jim Brown are notable figures in the African-American community that a lot of people know about. But the great thing that this film does with these legends is that it's not just about what they do as far as a life occupation. We already know that Jim Brown was a great NFL running back. We already know that Muhammad Ali was a heavyweight champion. We also know that Sam Cooke was a great musician. And we know that Malcolm X was a internationally known revolutionary. But this film digs deep into the inner psyche of these guys while they know they have this strong position it's about them figuring out what they are doing with that position. Are they doing enough? Could there be different ways that they can um, reach out and commit to the same goal, which is black empowerment? These guys have a different way of looking at life, but the one goal they do share is that they know they are beacons of inspiration and celebration for the African-American community, especially during a time where there wasn't a lot of African-American celebrities, you could say, that were dedicated to fighting the movement. I mean, we've seen the story of O.J. Simpson, who, who was a famous NFL athlete, but when it came to social issues and the struggle for the civil rights movement, he wasn't to be found. He was invisible. And it's very commendable that all these guys, with the big platform they have, it, this was suspected of Malcolm X because before any of these guys were known, Malcolm X was already fighting the fight for black empowerment and for economic freedom, but the other guys, such as Brown, Ali, and Cook, they're in the entertainment industry, which was mostly dominated by white faces at the time. And these guys are having to navigate all that, still be successful, still be at the top of their game, and also having to continue to fight for the people who are not able to be on their same platform or have the same influence that they do. So, yes, this may be a stage play. We'll get into it later. But I feel that Regina King does a good job. And Kemp Powers, screenwriter Kemp Powers, who we talked about last week from Soul, they do a great job of showing these guys as more than who they are at face value or what you see in a history book. We get to know these guys personally and candidly. And I like to say that for Muhammad Ali's character, um, Ellie Gorey, his performance makes me more connected to his Ali than I was to Will Smith's Ali. So for me, these guys, they're legends and they're heroes. And in this film, we get to see them as men. How about you, Aaron? 
Yeah, I'm going to say my one word takeaway is conversation. And that's because I think that for me, what I get the most out of this movie is watching four men, four heroes, as Coles pointed out. They're not just any men, but they are just friends in a sense as well, talking it out. In this context, in a lot of ways, they're just friends. And what I love about the script is the way it shows multiple viewpoints of the same issues without ever taking a singular position of this is the right way to go about it. The structure of a big group argument, specifically between two of the men, Malcolm and Sam, which is kind of the crux of the film in a lot of ways, that then splits off into two different conversations between pairs of the men and both of those side conversations end up helping to provide some perspective for the characters who are arguing to look at things from each other's point of view. And I love that. I think that it is maybe in the words of Don Shanahan, our friend from every movie has a lesson. That is probably the film's biggest lesson to me is we need to talk and we need to listen to each other and it's okay to get mad, but we need to have people in our circle that we trust people who are close to us where if Patrick, you and I do not see eye to eye and we are going at it, we can do that. But we need a coalesce to grab me and take me outside and say, hey, brother, this is what he's trying to explain to you. Let me put it down a different way. And maybe I can get you to see things a little bit clearly. And then we come back together and we, we all grow from it. And we're not trying to get to one specific answer. The goal is the same for all of these men and how it's going to go be accomplished is not necessarily going to be the same for all four of them because they're coming from very different places of power and different expertises and talents. And ultimately it boils down to the advice of those friends who you trust is extremely important and supporting a friend's choice despite disagreeing with them is pretty special. And that all comes out of this entire movie that is basically just a conversation. Right. And Aaron, I could tag off of what you're saying and also what Gilles, you're saying about the fact that these are just men. My one word takeaway is human. And when you look at these men, they are heroes. Absolutely. They are significant men of influence when it came to their respective fields. And then you have what they did for the civil rights movement in their own way but this film grounds them in a way that allows me to care a little bit more intimately about each one of them. And it humanizes them. And that's very important to me because otherwise I'm just watching a history lesson play out and I'm getting my suspicions or my historical facts confirmed. And Regina King and Kent Powers, they, they don't rest on that. They acknowledge their celebrity. They acknowledge their influence but they enhance their humanity in those conversations, Aaron. And I love that word, by the way, conversation, because it implies two people walking through issues with the goal not to necessarily prove each other right or wrong, but to get to a common ground, to get to an end point. And One Night in Miami, one of the reasons I enjoyed it so much is that it shows that. It shows conflict and it shows confrontation, and it shows differences that are significant, differences that are real, differences that are 
not well known necessarily. And the fact that honesty and civil discourse can exist in relationships. And I would imagine that if these four individuals lived in today's world, they'd probably get frustrated at the amount of one-sided conversations that seem to take place on social media or through memes that don't get anything done. They just stir the pot. And I think before I watched this movie, I would have probably said that about one or two of these characters, that they're just around to stir things up. And obviously that's ignorant of me. And I've recognized that about myself over the last several years and my desire to get more educated when it comes to not only understanding black culture, but understanding people in general and not forcing people into a box. So watching One Night in Miami, it allows me to, a lot like Soul, feel comfortable getting into that space, into that hotel room, on that roof. And yes, I'm a spectator. I have no creative input. I have no verbal input into those conversations, but I don't feel like I'm a fly on the wall. I don't feel like I'm not necessarily uninvited. I feel like I am part of the conversation. And that's the magic of Kemp Powers. I've told Aaron this, Coles, I want to have lunch with the guy. I've been really just embracing interviews and opportunities of his storytelling. And he is just amazing. And he feels to me in the little bit that I know of him through those mediums, like a guy that I would want to sit down and just talk about things, have a conversation with. In Miami, lo- eating soul food. Exactly. Exactly. But I wouldn't be as pretty. That's for sure. And I would definitely not be the greatest. I would just be the guy. And so for me, having that humanity, being able to connect with these these characters, and we'll call them characters for the sake of the of the movie, but these people, these men, in a way that I don't know that I would otherwise if a story like this didn't exist. So fantastic. One word takeaways. I would definitely embrace all three of ours. And so it's it's great. Well, at this point, this is our spoiler-rific portion of the podcast. We'll be talking about it in great detail. So if you haven't seen this or you were just waiting to hear what we thought initially, stop the recording now. Go to amazon.com slash prime slash subscribe if you haven't and check out this movie. It's available streaming on Amazon Prime for all Prime members. I'm sure it's available to rent if you're not, but it's an hour and a half that I think you'll really enjoy. And I think the, the other two of us will agree with that. But if you have, then here we go. Let's enjoy the conversation, as it were. Well, the film comes from an ab- adaptation of a play of the same name. And Kent Powers, definitely known for his screenwriting now, he adapted it. He was the screenwriter for the for the movie, also the originator of the play. As we mentioned before, he was the co-director and screenwriter for Soul that we covered last week. What kind of advantages and disadvantages does this type of adaptation have over things like novels or original stories for film? The advantage comes into when I notice what I'm seeing when I see stage plays that are being adapted for film, I'm noticed that the one thing I never have to worry about is being confused or having to follow so many things on the screen. You know, it, this is a different experience than seeing something like a tenant where you have to pay attention to almost everything in order to try to form a picture of what's going on. But with a stage play, 
it's pretty much all about the actors and the screenwriting. They're very important elements. Without without both of those elements, you really don't have a famous st- a stage play that could continue to go on for many weeks and eventually make it to Broadway. But for a film, all you need to do is translate both of those elements, and you can usually make a good adaptation. You know, the great, the good ones that I've seen of stage plays being brought to the screen, which is Fences from 2016 with Denzel Washington, Viola Davis. And then you had Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which came out last year in December. Um, the thing that felt limiting for me as far as Ma Rainey's Black Bottom is that it did feel a little bit too play-like because there are only so many locations you can go with certain stories. You know, in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, you have just the outside of Chicago, then you have the studio. But with this film, I feel like One Eye in Miami doesn't feel like a stagey play to me because we are able to travel to a lot of different locations and focus on a lot of other characters than what you would get in a stage play. In the beginning of the film, we see each of these men at different stages of their life going through somewhat of a crisis or feeling some kind of a reckoning. And throughout the film... Outside of the hotel room, you see that Malcolm is having a conversation with his family. You see that Muhammad and Sam end up leaving the hotel room and they go off to themselves to have a conversation. Or you see the guys who go out of the room and go up top of the hotel and having a conversation. You know, in a typical stage play, you just have that one location that you're pretty much centered in. So everything really bogs down to how are your actors going to make the setting feel real and can your writing hold up? So I would lay that out as more of an advantage for this film because there's not really a lot of disadvantages that comes to the way that this film was able to adapt from the stage to the play. But overall, adapting a stage play can be very, very tricky, and it just depends on the behind the scenes and the talent that you can bring in to make it feel like a feature film and not just something confined and limited to just one stage. Yeah, I, I agree, man. It's all about making it cinematic. That's the word that I like to use when we're talking about these adaptations is can you make it cinematic? Can you make it need to be seen or valuable to be seen on a TV screen, on a movie screen, in a theater, in that setting where the actors aren't in front of you actually moving back and forth behind a curtain and sets are being interchanged throughout the course of the show. And I think that one of the things I'm focusing on, refocusing on in a sense, because I think feel and film really was about this in the beginning. And and even I go through swings and I get out of, you know, practice and I let myself go sometimes with this, but some conversations we've had in the Facebook group over the last week have really reaffirmed for me that, you know, I don't want to tell people they're wrong for the way they feel about something. So I understand that people are, not reacting and relating to the way that this film is presented to them because it is not showy. And actually, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom was a great comparison, Coalesce, both because they are all featuring plot casts uh, and similar themes that they're talking about, but they both came out at, you know, within a month of each other, both Oscar contenders, etc., both with performances that are award-worthy and all of that. It was showy in a way that actually distracted me from what I could have gotten out of it. I didn't get as much out of it as I did this one. And I think that's because I'm okay with stage plays. Like I would just be happy to go sit and watch these four guys sit on a stage and literally read 
their parts. I'd be fine with it because I believe in their voice acting. I believe in their mannerisms and their talent, and I'd be okay with that. And so what I think Regina does is actually pretty brilliant, to be honest, because she lets them shine just with their acting. And the camera, the way the camera frames people in a room is where directing comes in and where you really understand how you're making this quote cinematic when they're just standing in a hotel room talking or, you know, using a trigger event to get them on the roof to kind of get them out of an environment and into an open space temporarily, get them out to a, you know, convenience store for a brief moment just to break up that monotony so you don't go crazy with them just sitting in a room. And so the characters don't go crazy sitting in a room because they were going crazy, some of them sitting in the room. And so for me, I think it's all about like how we watch the characters. And I have no problem with it one night in Miami. The first time I watched it, the second time, even less of a problem with it because I think that I'm so focused in on the relationships and the words that are being spoken and the body language that is happening in the room throughout. I didn't want the distraction. Like I, I didn't like, it's fine. If all of the things in the room are very simplistic, there's not a bunch of stuff. The TV doesn't really get turned on. They're not like watching the TV in the background. It's just vanilla ice cream. There's no like, you know, it's, it's the most basic of spaces that allows the conversations to be put at the forefront. It forces them to be in the mindset and it, and it kind of pushes these men into a place where all you have to do is talk to each other, guys. Like you're out of options. You know, there's nothing else to do. And I think that's intentional and it works so well for me. And so I don't want to criticize people who say this movie was boring because it isn't cinematic and it just felt like a stage play. But I will say, I think you're missing the impact of the film if you think it's boring because you're focusing on the wrong thing. And I don't think that it's fair to criticize the filmmaking because I think the filmmaking is solid even if we don't respond to it. And that's also fair. But in this case, I just, I definitely think it is a really, really well made and well told story. Great points, guys. And I, I, Absolutely agree. I think what Regina King does from the director's chair is pretty incredible. You can tell it's based on a stage play. And I loved watching this knowing that because I was asking myself, how is she going to break this up? How is she? And what you see, Aaron, as you mentioned in your one word takeaway is there are pairings. And yes, it's all about the dialogue. I think we can all agree. We don't have to go round and round about saying, oh, the dialogue, the dialogue. We'll obviously get to that with the performances later, but I wanted to point out the fact that the blocking is really good. Like there are times you're watching this and you know, you're, you're behind the fourth wall watching these characters interact and the way in which she has them positioned is beautiful. Like there are shots that I'm like, Oh man, Aaron, you've got this background behind you. That is a great blocking shot that brings these characters together, but it puts them in an incredible like frame where that's what stage plays do. It's all about the blocking because they don't have a lot of places to go. And for me, a creative person allows those limitations to shape their creative juices. In other words, I don't think this movie 
was ever going to be, and nobody will probably say this if they're criticizing it or not, was ever going to be about the location. It's going to be, it's not, the, the hotel room is not going to be the highlight. It's going to be a caveat. The ice cream was never going to be a focal point. It was a punchline. The, the roof was, as you said, Aaron, another opportunity to break up some of that scenery. And every scene outside of that room felt purposeful to set up exposition or to allow us to interact and listen to this dialogue with pairings of people that made sense. If you look at where Cassius and Sam go, I mean, they're the partiers. They're, well, Jim Brown too, but but these two, they break away to go get drinks <laughs> and they have that, you know, have a great conversation in the car. There's this intimate conversation between Jim and Cassius about his about Jim's potential movie career that's going to come after that. And it takes place in the hotel room. Why does it take place? Because the other two are out somewhere. They're doing something else. And so I think what Regina King does so well here is that she uses those locations to help isolate those conversations that probably exist in the stage play, where instead of characters being off stage and the stage being the place, she's using those locations to help enhance the conversations. I also think that as a film, this allows access for those that won't get to see the stage play. I don't know where this is playing, when this plays, if it's still playing anywhere, if you can get the right, you can't. I mean, that's the thing. This gets us like fences, which I haven't seen. And I want to give it a shot because listen, I know there's a bunch of blind spots. Let's I just know. get that out of the Trust way. Me, I know. But seeing And one of the reasons that I didn't necessarily embrace that was like, I don't want to see the stage play on the big screen. But now that I've seen One Night in Miami, this gives me pause to say, all right, let me check this out. Because I am in, sometimes like a lot of people who are like, give me a little bit more juice. But look, if the script is this amazing and if it allows me to feel what I feel, then heck yeah, I'll check out any stage play adaptation that doesn't have to do much when it comes to the scenery. The I also want to, wanted to mention that what you're talking about with the hotel rooms, th there's an authenticity here that's important. And that is the fact that these four men who are very famous and very well-known have to go to a specific part of town into a hotel room in order to have time alone and time safe and be quiet for five minutes to actually hang out together without fear of people being following them or being overwhelmed by fans or whatever the case may be. And so there is a reason it's in a hotel room. Like it's not just picked because she couldn't think of a better location. You know what I mean? Like there is, it is in this specific area in this quiet place because it's a safe spot. And that, and that says something about the time period. It says something about the fact that these four men who are among the most famous in the world at the time or famous in America at the time, have to go to a place like this still in order to find time alone. They can't go to the bougie, nice hotel that Sam's at because they don't have a white guy to book it for them. You know what I mean? And so I think that that is part of the importance of this tale and the era and, and really expressing to us what these four men went through despite – that's the that's one of the biggest things I get on the movie is like we know them because of their accomplishments we know muhammad ali because he was the best boxer in the world at the time and because he got a debilitating illness 
you know, we know Jim Brown because of his running back career. Pretty much nobody knows about his film career. Very few people probably, unless you were alive at the time, followed his film career very closely. Sam Cooke, I didn't know. You know what I mean? Like, I actually didn't know who he was, but loved getting to learn about him. So that was a fun part for me. And then, of course, everybody knows who Malcolm X is. And I'll talk more about my thoughts on Malcolm X when we get to his section. But my point being is, like, everybody goes into the movie with a belief of who these people are based on the media and based on sports and based on what you grew up knowing of them. And this is none of that, really. It's so much deeper than that, and it and it needed to be in a setting like this in order to accomplish that. And and it's not all in a hotel room, frankly. You know, we we spend like thirty minutes at the start of this movie, bouncing around different stories, setting things up. It is not all in a hotel room, actually. Just about an hour of it is an hour and fifteen minutes of it. So anyway, whatever. Moving along. I will say this before we move on: that Regina King is very intentional about the things she doesn't include. I don't hear a lot of music until music is important. And so I think that's pretty specific. The the settings, I think, are not showy for specific reasons. I mean, a rooftop, a hotel. I mean, you mentioned earlier the, the exposition setting, and that had purpose. But yeah, when we get to the meat and potatoes of the, the actual stage production, it's it's plain. And it's plain for good reasons. And it really helps hone in on the things that I believe she and Kemp want to allow us to hone in on. Well, Kemp has said this story is based on a night when these four men actually did come together following Cassius Clay's defeat of Sonny Liston. And just for posterity, I know that everybody knows that Muhammad Ali and Cassius Clay are the same. So if we go back and forth, he's referred to as Cassius because, you know, for me, I refer to him as Cassius because the pivotal moment of him saying he's going to be Muhammad Ali comes at the end. So whatever, but if you call him Muhammad Ali, it's all good. So just for anybody listening, if you're confused, that's what it is. <laughs> all right. So it's about this night when these men come together, but the conversations that take place, the things that we've all fallen in love with are actually fictional. And I wanted to know from you guys, what strengths does this bring to this overall story? And do you feel like it might be a disservice to these four men knowing that these conversations were made up? It's one of those things where you like to imagine certain people or certain events happening when they don't happen. You know, it's like we go back in history and we see that the that there was a certain amount of famous people that were hanging out in a, a single area at one point in history. And we always wonder, well, did these people like stop one night and have a conversation about what they did or like did these people collaborate you know how did these people feel about one another it's always a great game to play and this film is essentially just the um the fantasy of what i would like to see i mean because these guys they i grew up watching documentaries reading books you know having my parents tell me about seeing these guys in action my grandparents not, not my real parents because they'll be very very old but my grandparents would tell me seeing these guys in action and understanding who they were and the type of power they had. It's like a, a version of alternate history, which there is nothing wrong with alternate history, in my opinion. I, I feel that film already, and even stage plays, is a way of a creative being able to tell a story that they want to tell. And you don't have to play by the rules by confining to just these guys were in the city of Miami for one night, and they were ne never able to meet. How about if they were able to meet? Let's make a story about that. And also, let's relate it to the current conversation we're having right now about social justice in America. Because 
all of these guys, especially Malcolm X, was at the front line of this fight. I mean, it's not a few years after the events of this film that Muhammad Ali ends up not going to war when he was drafted for the Vietnam War and losing part of the prime of his boxing career because he didn't feel that he wanted to fight for a country where black people were not treated right. We have a guy like Jim Brown, who, along with Bill Russell, Lou Alcindor, in like 1968 came together and pledged to be some of the first athletes willing to forego their playing careers if it meant that black people were not getting the concessions and the rights and you know the things that they were that they deserved as a human being they were willing to sacrifice their careers and it says a lot because these are the type of people that we need right now we don't have many leaders like these guys are today and it's great to understand the history lessons and the fights and the conversations between these guys understanding that they are the the revolutionary fighters of a movement and they're giving guidance to us to figure out what do we want to do and continue with this fight like what can we do like the central conflict of this film is like malcolm and sam you know malcolm is talking to sam and telling him you know you're you're doing good with your music you know you're you're, you're pleasing you know mostly the white establishment, but when are you going to make songs, when are you going to make pop songs that put away the messages that help your own people? You know, you have a big platform, and Sam is like, I'm doing enough. Like, it may not be seen, but I'm doing behind the scenes. I'm showing people what it's like to have black ownership. I'm showing people what it's like to have economic freedom. And that's why I say in the beginning, it goes back to that these guys had different ways of seeing the world. Like Aaron said, different beliefs, but it was all for the purpose of one goal, which was to put black people in a place like Muhammad Ali says later on the film, put them in a place where they have freedom to do what they want, be who they want to be, while having to answer to an oppressive system. Yeah, it absolutely, man, it is. And I think that, you know, for me, there is a power when you understand and know that it's not realistic or not real rather not not realistic it is very realistic it could have happened i think it, the important part is knowing that that this is a fictionalized story i think there is the potential here for people to maybe watch this and think that this happened and that's not fair to the legacy of these men necessarily but i think that from everything we know about them, that they are portrayed in a way that they would be proud of. Uh, it's hard to say that. They're not here, right? But you don't get always to have a say in your history and your legacy when you, you passed on. So that's not going to always be the case. For me, the way that this film uses these historic characters to speak things that are still... <laughs> Of course, sadly being dealt with today, some of the ones that stood out are Jim talking about his film acting and Cash just tells him at one point, he's like, the only reason they want you in that movie is because you're known for football. And Jim says, we're all just gladiators running and dancing for thumbs up from the crowd. Shut up and play basketball. That That's what this is. This is shut up and play basketball. Just go do the thing I want you to do for my entertainment. Because that's all you are to me, is entertainment. And that was happening then, and the crazy thing is that people like LeBron are having to address it now, today, even today. Even 
the craziness of a guy like Kyrie Irving, for those who follow NBA basketball. The guy definitely has more on his mind than playing NBA basketball. He cares about a lot of other stuff, and he probably has some issues that he needs to work out. But his heart comes out so often, and people freak out because he's not always with his team, or he's doing things that are not normal for an NBA player. He's not staying the normal course and, and putting the team first and all of these things because he's got other things that matter to him, and that's what's causing the acting out that we see in the media. And it just reminded me that like this goes so far back right, to this type of event where these guys understood that, and they're having to try and work through and they trailblazed in a way because they started to fight back from that. And it took how many years till we get to this point to where athletes will actually like in the media can stand up and be like, no, I'm not going to do that. Right. And so some of these like comparison issues that are still happening today that we, we see, and, and this happens all the time when we watch historic films. Uh, my daughter was watching Do the Right Thing for the very first time for her film class that she's taking right now in college. And she was like, everything's the same. Like, why is that sad? And yes, it's, it's extremely sad. And we see that here. And I think, I think we need to keep, continue to do that. Right. And I think going through these fictional conversations helps us to do that because we're able to take our fandom of these people and what we know of them from, are ele these elevated places we have in them and see them for more than just that front facing piece that we get in the media. And I, I just, I, I don't know that doing this as a strict rendition of what we know of them saying is, is necessarily going to be the right call. There's a way there's a power in, putting them in a room together and imagining how their different personalities would come together in a public eye. But the point of it is it's not, it, the point of it is not public eye. It's a private conversation that we're getting a peek into that we would never get to see. And so this isn't something that we would be privy to. And so it definitely has a power there. Um, to, sh to show people that people like this actually were friends. Guys, I didn't know they were friends, first of all. I didn't know that these four men had anything to do with each other <laughs> until I watched this movie. So it's like a history lesson for me, whether it's fictionalized or not. And so I, I got a lot out of it, even knowing that it's not real. I think maybe more so than if you were just showing me what they did in the public that I could go and watch an archived video of. I struggled with this early on because as Aaron, you and I've talked about when it comes to biopics, you have to be very careful. Actually, you don't. If you're a director and you have money and you're going to do a biopic on somebody, it doesn't really matter because you're in charge, but you can make mistakes. And when it comes to four individuals who had such a significant impact on civil rights, it kind of made me wonder, okay, what's happening here? Are we putting words in their mouths? Did people really, did these guys really have a conflict with each other? And it took, first my viewing to stop caring as much about that. But 
wanting to know more about their relationships. So the fact that they met one night in Miami, like that actually happened. There was that meeting. It wasn't like Kent Powers was like, you know what? Let's put these four guys in a room that may or may not know each other and let's really kind of put their conversations together. That would have bothered me more because if none of these guys met each other, then none of those conversations would have felt organic. It would have been like, well, you know what? Yeah, militant Malcolm always just kind of mouthing off and telling people that they're wrong and that they love the white people because, you know, they're singing and playing for them. Well, that came out in a sense, but it was more subtle. And when you know that these guys were friends and that was the fact, it makes those conversations feel more authentic. Now, the thing about Kent Powers that I found out is that this, this guy was a journalist. Like he has a journalistic background. And the origin of this play actually started as a book that he wanted to write about these four men and the influence that they had on each other regarding the civil rights movement. So what you see is the execution in a more entertainment fashion of what would have taken place. So what I'm experiencing is not untruths. It's not – the conversations themselves are definitely what if, but they come from authentic places based on – information that he gleaned over the course of several years to potentially make this book that eventually turned into the stage play to me guys that's what makes this film that much more fantastic this is the right way to do an inspired by actual events film with purpose because you get entertainment you get information and you have you're essentially acknowledging the fact that this is fiction sort of you're not making up historical facts about these men. Everything that we see about these men, we know from interviews, we know from documents, we know from everything, and it comes from a credible source. I mean, as a journalist, I would think that Kent Powers feels like he has to have journalistic integrity when he's showing this to us. I mean, there's a journalistic integrity that exists in this story, and the fact that we get these amazing conversations I don't know. He didn't say this necessarily. I don't remember him saying this, but I would think that some of these conversations existed at some point in time, maybe before this night or after this night. Maybe some of those conflicts that Malcolm X and Sam Cooke had were very much real. But even if they weren't, we know enough about Sam Cooke and about Malcolm X that when you put those two in a room who were friends, fact – there's bound to be that kind of conflict because they have completely different ideologies. They're all, they're both trying to get to the same point, but they're doing it in different ways. And so it makes it that much more interesting to watch these two guys say, well, what would it be like if these two guys who see themselves as being important to this movement and important to black people, what happens if they get into a room and their ideologies just come to blows with each other? And what we get, boom. That and that's incredible to me because in any other situation, I'm a white guy watching this or sitting outside the door or over at a hotel downtown, and I'm not hearing this, I'm not getting to see that kind of conflict that humanizes them for me. It tells me point blank that not everybody felt the way that Malcolm X did, not everybody saw the world that Sam Cooke did, and they both have valid reasons for doing what they're doing. At the end of this whole thing, I'm th I'm not thinking that this person's right and this person's wrong. At the end of this whole thing, I'm thinking, wow, there are a lot of worldviews, even among a common ground goal. 
And I know that sounds like, wow, you're just now getting this. But seriously, you know, you again, to understand something, we want to simplify it. And in my mind, there's a part of me that wants to just say, all black people who are supporting civil rights think the same way. No, they don't. They don't. And Sam Cooke and Malcolm X are two great examples of that. Jim Brown's another example of that. Cassius Clay's another example of that. And we see that played out over the course of an hour and a half. And it's beautiful because it validates the fact that there is conflict everywhere and that people, individuals, not a group of people necessarily, or a national a national group of people like Americans think the same way. Yes, there's common ground here and there, but even among these common groups and common goals, the methods are probably going to be in conflict, and it takes those conversations to understand, maybe not agree. One of the things I loved about this, guys, is the fact that Sam Cooke did not become a member of the Nation of Islam. <laughs> you could have taken it that way. You could have said, ah, there's the end game. Malcolm X is trying to recruit everybody. And that's even brought up as kind of a you know, scripted joke here and there. But that wasn't what we saw. Sam Cooke is a better Sam Cooke as a result of this one night in Miami that we see. And I love that. I love that he didn't change necessarily his desire to be a great musician. He didn't say, I'm going to give up being a musician so I can be a member of the Nation of Islam and so I can become militant. That this movie was not about one night in Miami so that everybody could become like Cassius Clay or like Jim Brown or like Malcolm X. No, it was about these four individuals that we know from the outside. Now we're getting to see this intimacy and this conflict that exists between four friends. And man, this is probably the healthiest depiction of conflict that I can probably say is depicted on screen. And maybe that's one of the criticisms that it's not, I mean, people aren't coming to blows. There's no violence. No, there's not. This is what brothers do. Common ground people, they're going to fight. And man, that's a breath of fresh air. <laughs> it doesn't have to be like overwhelming. I mean, the language is like crazy off the hook. <laughs> and I'd forgotten between my first and second view. I was like, this would be a great movie. Well, maybe I don't need to show this to people who have a language issue. But it definitely didn't deter from the overall like tone and the, the struggle and, and all that. And I think that seeing this you're less focused on the fact of asking the question, did these conversations really take place? And you're more focused on the fact that these guys were friends and this probably these conversations probably did take place, maybe not in that night, but it doesn't really matter because for the sake of the story, that's what we're capturing. We're capturing the true essence of, of what they were all about. And that's the cinematic and the storytelling quality of whether it's stage play or a movie. Like that's the whole purpose of fiction, guys, is – to imagine things and to tell stories that explain and evoke feelings or thoughts or whatever. Like you could look at this and you could be like, Oh, that's ridiculous that all of these things happen to just come out of this one night that they had together. Magically Sam wrote this song and you know, Oh, and Muhammad became Muhammad instead of Cassius X and like, you know, really got into Nation of Islam and these things like all occurred because of this night. This is what triggered all of them. You could read it that way. And it would be silly to like criticize it for that because I think we all know that it's more than just what one night happened. The point being is that this is this serves this night serves a, a lot of the same purposes that a cipher character, not a cipher, uh, 
What's the word, Patrick? Com- composite. Composite. Character. There we go. Let's start with C. A composite character serves in many biopics. A bunch of different people rolled up into one to give you the whole of what kind of happened so we don't have to deal with like knowing 15 different people's impact on a specific story. This night serves that purpose. Do we think that these men have related? Do we know they had relationship? Absolutely. They weren't hanging out in a hotel room all together one night for the first time ever in their lives, right? Like it's not like they didn't know each other leading up to this. Have they probably had conversations? Yeah, I would guess so, right? So maybe it didn't all go down on one specific night. That's not the point. The point is that they had relationships and that they were in these varying stages of their civil rights activism. And the fact is, we know what happened after this night. And the fruit of the tree tells us where they went from this point forward. So it's really engaging and entertaining, as well as informational and possibly transformational to imagine how that might have gone down. Yeah, I just want to add a little thing on to that, is that sometimes people have a problem with just like, Looking at things too much from a literal standpoint, you know, it's it's like it's like you have the um, history buffs and the armchair um, history teachers out there telling you, well, this didn't happen and this would definitely not happen. But I mean, it's all about thinking outside the box. You know, it's all about reading between the lines and the whole conversation between Jim and Malcolm, Muhammad and Sam, you know, it's really not good to look at it from a sense of like, what would these guys say? It's a sense of looking at it as a metaphorical and symbolic standpoint to a current time of what we're having here in America. I feel that that's the best um, proponent of One Night Miami is that it feels relatable. And no matter if this conversation took place or not, this, these events just feel relatable. And these guys are talking about things that we can find some education, some new information, and some new clarity about. Absolutely, Kales. And, you know, in the world of theology, when you're when you're studying scripture, one of the things that you're taught is to recognize the type of book that you're reading. So theologians will say that Genesis through Deuteronomy, it's history. And so you need to read it from a historical vantage point, whether a, whether you know, you do or not, that's up to you. But whereas like the book of Psalms, Song of Solomon, those are poetry books. Does it mean that truth doesn't exist because people are speaking metaphorically or they're using symbolism? Absolutely not. But to take something poetic and try to make it literal does a misinterpretation of that particular scripture. And it also does a disservice to the reader because they're now trying to imprint something different or something that wasn't intended by the author. And I think when it comes to film adaptations of plays or books or whatever, we have to not understand what the director or the screenwriter were trying to say. That's one of the things about film is it's art and we make a subjective interpretation, but it's important to understand the context. So when we look at One Night in Miami and we see the words inspired by true events, and we know because we can read and we can go on the internet and know that This event took place, but the conversations were created, fabricated for this story. Okay, now we know the context. Now we know the intent. 
So we don't need to get our heads wrapped around the fact that, wait a minute, they, they wouldn't have said all that in one night. That's a lot. I mean, that's, that's like nine hours of conversations. I mean, I mean, the sun, it should have come up by then, you know, just stupid things like that. And I don't know if people are thinking that somebody might, somebody that has an ax to grind might try to nitpick that. But the fact is we need to understand that when we watch a sci-fi movie, we're not looking for cowboys. Okay. Unless it's specifically saying this is a sci-fi Western, like Cowboys and Aliens. When we watch a Western, we're not looking for 21st century technology to exist. To do so would be stupid and a disservice to the creative team behind it. And in this case, we have to get behind the fact that there's an event that took place and the substance inside it was fictional, but it didn't come from a place that was completely fabricated. It was created because of what we know historically about these individuals and again i go back to saying that the fact that these guys were friends that's the linchpin if these guys were not friends i don't think i would have been as high on this film because that's what made it authentic that's what gave it its substance and that's what made it relatable is the fact that these guys knew each other they weren't randomly talking one night they didn't just happen upon this grubby hotel room and say hey Look, it's Cassius Clay, the greatest in the world. Hey, I was at your boxing match. No, they knew each other, and that makes it that much better. Well, one of the advantages that a movie like this has in coming from a stage play, at least for Regina King, is the fact that she can expand setting. She can expand the locations, and she does that pretty effectively. We talked about that, and you guys touched on the opening segments of this movie. It was about, I guess it was... Well, I watched it for the second time this last week, and so it had been, I don't know, probably three weeks since I would seen it for the first time. And there were parts of it that I didn't remember. But what we get is what I think is a pretty fantastic set of exposition that really gives us conflict for each of these individuals. We see Cassius getting knocked down in an early bout months i don't know how how long it was months or maybe it was a year before his his bout with sunny liston jim brown goes back to his home island i guess you could say where he lives his hometown and he's talking to a family friend whose conversation kind of goes in a unexpected way we have malcolm x who is struggling with leaving the nation of Islam. And then we have Sam Cooke, who is getting booed off the stage, essentially, at the Copa. Does not have the best night ever at the Copa, his dream. And I, I personally think that without those moments of exposition, if we had started in that hotel room or, or at the fight and leading into the hotel room, I don't know that the movie would have been as strong in terms of humanizing these characters and i wanted to ask what did these performances of of the men do to your understanding of them and the background they came from prior to meeting that night they say that a man is more judged by how he does in times of failure and you know being at the being at the most lowest that you can be than in times of success and while we're not seeing these guys are just at the lowest of the lows you know they suffered a little bit of a setback but what you're seeing is that these guys are human, just like us. They're not just celebrities. It would have been so easy for another director to come in and start the film with 
a montage of each of these guys doing what they do best and being celebrated. Like Jim Brown being carried up by his teammates after beating the rushing record or seeing Muhammad Ali winning a fight and being like, float like a butterfly, strain like a bee and, 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 do, and doing his speech. Or it would have been easy to see Sam Cooke recording um, You Send Me and then having that hit number on the pop charts or and seeing Malcolm X do one of his speeches and the crowd rejoicing. It would have been easy to do that because it's been done in almost every other film dealing with these figures. But what is done here is to show that these guys, they're going through struggles too. And they have to find a way to make a comeback from that. They have to find a way to reckon with that. They have to find, they still have to deal with being a black person in America. You know, these guys were at the top of their game in each of their fields, but at the end of the day, there are still black men and no amount of money or success um, can insulate you from that. I mean, we, when Malcolm and Sam get into their whole conversation with each other, he's essentially telling Sam that, yes, you may be scoring number one hits and you may be making a lot of money in this music industry, but, un I mean, you're essentially a wind-up monkey toy for these white people. You are essentially making these pop hits and you're not willing to forego your fa your famous brand and reaching out and actually doing something revolutionary, something that is off course for what your brand has been so far in the mode of trying to help other black people. I mean, we see him, we see Jim Brown even talk about how he doesn't really want to play in the NFL because he realizes that being an actor is much easier on your knees than constantly being tackled by other grown men and looking up into the owner's box and seeing the owners just see you as nothing but something to ash to their bottom line at the end of the year. And we see Malcolm, he's understanding that, you know, he's having a different view than what he used to have. And that's different. And that's setting him off away from his other brothers in the nation of Islam. He's on his way out and understanding how he's going to have to explain that to Muhammad after he was trying so hard over who knows how long it was, but maybe a couple of years trying to talk him into being a Muslim. And then the one thing that this film, it may not get talked about in a lot of reviews, but, the one thing it showed me was a really a vulnerable side of Muhammad Ali. You know, oftentimes in, we see historical interviews of Muhammad Ali where he's at his most brash, where he's at his most confident, dropping rhyming lines, poetry, you know, things that are spectacular. But in this film, we see him go through dealing with um, thinking that a, fan a friend exploited him for fame, exploited him just off his name, trying to get him to be a Muslim, and then turn out that he's leaving, that Malcolm is leaving, the nation of Islam and thinking that he just used them just for a name. We, we see these little eternal struggles that, that are defining each of these men and how they're going to work their way past them. And the one performance I say that is, that was the biggest standout for me was um, Kingsley as Malcolm X. Now, as far as Malcolm X performances, I don't think we're going to get anything better than what Denzel did for Spike Lee in 1994, Malcolm X, but Kingsley, he he's a star in this role. He he's a star. I mean, it's, it would have been easy for him to play this as just always a loud, shouty, just always like looking at people, like looking down on people, and you know, being in the middle of Malcolm X. But no, we see a reflective, calm, and soft side of Malcolm X. You know, when he's talking to his kids. I mean, I thought that was an incredible, intimate moment. You know, seeing how close he is with his family and seeing how he loves his camera he's loves snapping photos just these little like minor details that add a new breath of life to who this guy was um you know the sad part about this meeting at the end of the day is that 
two of these guys, Malcolm and Sam, were would be dead within a year of when the supposed me would happen. So there's a little bit of like memorialism I'm seeing, especially at the end where one of y'all would talk about in the connecting points about the moment with Sam Cooke. But yes, there, there's a lot of added dimension to you know the internal conversations of this film that definitely will reward anybody who's willing to sit down and listen. Whoa, whoa. Me Googling while you're talking about Sam Cooke dying right after this. I did not know that. I, I didn't know much about Sam Cooke. What was he was shot is what I'm seeing. Oh, yes, he was. Um, he was shot in a hotel room in um, Los Angeles. Oh, my gosh. Maybe Serious that's why. I, and maybe that's why I was you know, the whole career ahead of him. I mean, incredibly talented guy. Obviously, I've gone back and listened to some of his music. Since this film that inspired me to do that, I mean, just gorgeous, gorgeous voice. Real quick, you think that uh, Kingsley Ben Adir gave a great performance as Malcolm X, even though he's British? <laughs> Are we gonna get into that? I, I, I don't understand. <laughs> I, yeah, well, I don't understand the complaint. I mean, I thought it was ridiculous in the beginning, and it's still ridiculous now. I mean, I've always said for biopics, it doesn't matter really what the actor is. I'm not really too big on looks. Looks do play a part, but if the actor can just get the character down, that's good enough for me. Beautiful way to put it, my friend. Uh, I agree, and Patrick's nodding. He would. I was gonna. Well. I was gonna be a little bit more terse about it. I think it's stupid. <laughs> I mean, look, I didn't even know he's British. Okay. So no, you wouldn't credit my, credit my ignorance because of the fact that he plays a great performance. And I think that you're just, you're fishing for something at that point. That's just stupid. But that's, yeah. again, that's my very biased terse opinion. And I'm just going to leave it there. Yeah, no, I, I feel like guys, uh, Sam Cook. So leading into this Sam Cook thing for me, Leslie Odom Jr. Just stole this show for me. And now I'll admit I'm a huge fan of the guy already as Aaron Burr and Hamilton and everything he did there. But he embodied Sam Cooke so much that I didn't think of that performance, which is actually kind of rare for me to do. For example, I absolutely adore Aldous Hodge. Like, I think Aldous Hodge is on the path and, and ready for, frankly, superstardom. I think he is Daniel Kaluuya level of an actor that we're, we're talking. This guy needs to have starring roles in films. He's... You know, your next John David Washington or, or whatever you want to call that, that this generation of incredible black leading men actors, Aldous Hodge is in that group to me, but I still kind of watch him and maybe it's cause he's playing a football player, but I'm like, Hey, what's up voodoo. Right. But I'm also just got done watching Friday night lights. So it's hard for me. And he was in the invisible man this year as well. So I, I, I didn't necessarily lose him completely in this role, even though I loved him in this role. But I just think that he, in general, is ready, and I hope that Hollywood gives him his shot to be the man, because I think he's going to blow everybody away when he gets it. But back to my point, Sam Cooke, for me, a mixture of Leslie Odom's performance, his singing, which just, I'm not, I kid you not, man, like, it just melts me. There is his voice is, and it's so close to Sam Cooke's, to be honest, like the way he sings these songs, when you go back and you listen to Sam, it, they almost sound identical to me. It's brilliant. And, uh, and it just, it, it's like a blanket and it's just so pretty and sweet and tender and watching his arc him being one of like the two main characters essentially in the film. If you were going to 
say there were two that had the biggest arcs going through this experience, kind of going back and forth, arguing with Malcolm about his role in activism and, and what he can do and how he lives his life in a way that enjoys the advantages of the white people that are friends with him and that, you know, enjoy his stardom, etc. There's a great part of a conversation where he kind of throws that back and, you know, explains some things. And I really enjoyed that as well, because these two men are just living in different worlds and their experiences are different. And that's where I was going with my conversation point earlier. Malcolm is presupposing how Sam should act and, re and, and move through his world without being in Sam's position of wealth and talent and appreciation for that from a, an entire industry of entertainment, right? He can talk about where he wants Sam to be on a long end game, right? And a long perspective of this is the kind this is the results we would love to see you be able to get. But Sam is able to speak to, hey man, these are some ways that those things are actually happening that you don't understand. And I think the pride of all of these actors, these men in this room, uh, is something that they, br they bring into this conversation that helps make it really interesting and entertaining and also relatable. Because I think anytime we talk about race, most of us bring some pride into that room. Um, you know, if we're a black man, we have an experience, right? And you can't begin to tell me I don't have an experience because I've lived it. If you, if I'm a white guy, I may be resistant or a bit defensive. If you tell me about white privilege, you know, like we're all bringing these prides that have to like be broken down. And even in this room amongst friends, they've got to get through those walls together as well. But I think that they all embody their characters just absolutely brilliantly. The opening section of this film is, is one of my favorite parts of it. Jim Brown's especially just the casual way in which that conversation takes place with somebody. And I go back to like just the shut up and dribble analogy uh, in the NBA that we've dealt with in the last several years of, man, I, you know, it was amazing watching you, Jimmy, and you are so awesome. And like, I'm going to shake your hand. I'm going to give you a glass of lemonade, but oh, we don't let you in the house. Come on, man. You know that, you know, your place. And that broke my heart. Actually, it angered me, frankly. It made me mad um, at Bo Bridges, not Jeff Bridges. I almost got confused for a little bit. And then I Googled it and I found out that Bo Bridges' daughter, Emily Bridges, is actually playing Emily, Bo Bridges' character's granddaughter in the movie. Fun fact. Sorry. A little trivia. Uh, so I, I really liked that scene. It was impactful for me uh, just thinking about how people <laughs> wear this face of acceptance because they, and that's what white supremacy is. So when, when you hear people in the news, when you hear people on social media and you hear people in your circles that are like decrying white supremacy and we get defensive about that because we're not, we don't hate black people. This is where it shows up. It shows up in a person that doesn't even necessarily understand it themselves because they think that they're being friendly. They literally think and believe that they are doing, they're, they're just fine. They're accepting 
I shook your hand. What are you talking about? Like, I, I think you're amazing. You're a great running back. I gave you a cup of lemonade. Like, I'm not a white supremacist because I won't let you in the house. Like, that's the mindset we're dealing with, you know? And we need to rewire our brains that we don't just see Ku Klux Klan helmets and, and nooses necessarily when we talk about what white supremacy is. Anyway, so that whole section makes me think of that. Uh, and then just, and Sam as well, like just his, his whole story, I won't go into some of it because I know connecting points are going to cover, but those connecting points you guys are going to talk about is a big part of why I loved Leslie Odom's performance as well. And Kingsley Benadir, I'm, I'm right there with you guys, uh, with you, Coles, specifically about his performance. I mean, the, the moments where he loses control a little bit are my favorite because we don't see him do that very often in the movie. He is the calming, steady force. And we know that he has to wear that on the outside for the public. And we see those cracks and we see how much that has weighed on him and worn him down. Right. It's one of my favorite parts about like uh, Selma as well. And seeing Martin Luther King, when you, when he cracks a little bit behind the scenes, when he makes mistakes in his marital life or whatever, like realizing these are real people, they're more than just a speech they gave. They're more than just the person in the textbook who got assassinated. And frankly, I don't, even in Denzel's film, which is fantastic, like, this is not the kind of Malcolm that we ever see. He's always focused on Malcolm. When Malcolm X is brought up, it's always the militant Malcolm X. It's always the Black Panthers or violence or, or, you know, fight fire with fire Malcolm X. It's not this Malcolm X. Like, you have to understand, and this is, to me, gave me a greater baseline and understanding of, like, how that character's beliefs influenced his actions on activism and how it's not about hurting other people for him. It's not about, it's not out of necessarily anger. It's out of a feeling of like, this is the only way to make anybody listen and hear and see us. And it just, it really did enhance my historical feelings toward Malcolm X, my respect for him, I think. Well, I co-signed everything that you guys said, and I want to throw some love to Eli Gorey. The portrayal of Cassius Clay, I think, is what stood out to me initially. You know, we, we, we are caricatures when we do our impressions of Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali. I am the greatest, and you know, we can come close. No, we can't. I'm just kidding. We can't ever come close to being that kind of guy. And when you watch Eli Gorey, play this character because Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay, they were characters. They were characters that I love his conversation with Malcolm X, where he talks about his favorite wrestler, gorgeous George and how he he's like, like gorgeous George is a villain. He's like, but yeah, but he gets the crowd amped. And he said, look, my performance is equally a, as valuable as how I box and initially you can you can smile and, and love Gory's performance because it feels like fun to see this wild version of Cassius Clay. Well, of course Cassius Clay is wild, but she, it's it's young almost. It's it's very even if there's a less restrained version of Muhammad Ali that you can see, this is it. It feels very teenage like, like he's trying to create his character in this part of his life. But by the end of the film, Kalesh, you kind of alluded to it. 
we get those intimate moments, the conflict of him coming out essentially and becoming part of a nation of Islam, the moment that he is realizing that, that Malcolm X confesses to him that he is no longer going to be a part of the nation, how mad he gets. Guys, I think when we see these guys lose it, those are the best parts of this movie for me. There are specific moments with Malcolm X where Malcolm X is on the rooftop, and what we see is him being confronted, and there's this moment where I think he takes his glasses off, and there are two or three moments where he takes his glasses off. We see his eyes. I Again, these the way in which these guys look gives them that authenticity that we want. And so when we see him take his glasses off, when he's being confronted about something, we see weakness, legit fear. And he's not that militant guy. And when we see Cassius Clay lose it, where he is not trying to be the greatest and not putting on this gorgeous face, as he says, those are moments that feel real. Sam Cooke does it too. And so does Jim Brown. None of these guys are perfect. None of these guys are always the people that we think they are. And so you can make an argument about, wow, this is a great way of showing that even celebrities are humans. And yes, that's one takeaway. But I think more so we realize that icons who are doing something that is significant for the world need to be looked at as human beings too because they still go home to their wives and their children and probably mess up as a result of directly or indirectly the things that they deal with every day and it kind of makes me want to watch more biopics about any of these individuals love to see a biopic about sam cook love to see a biopic about jim brown and we have two great ones with Ali and with Malcolm X, but there's a part of me that kind of wants to see a more expanded version of these two characters at this point in their life, early on in their career, before the significant events happen that make them who they are. And I think it speaks to the fact that their performances, while there's a lot of anger and there's a lot of, I won't call it rage, they're quieter characters. They're quieter versions of the people that we know now from history books and from newspapers and from interviews. And I think that's a very refreshing take because I'm not going to call these guys enemies or bad guys, but when we think about antagonists in film, I think all three of us like the antagonists that we can kind of feel empathy for, right? That have this, we have this understanding of why they're doing what they're doing. And Malcolm X in particular, I always see him as militant. Now I see him a little bit differently. Now I see that his responses are done out of necessity, not because he's an angry black man, but because he may not see any other way. And the film doesn't necessarily tell us who's right or who's wrong, and that's okay, because complex issues like this that still exist today, there's no silver bullet answer. If it were that true then we can answer the question, how do you solve racism? Well, how much time do you have? How much coffee do you have that we could drink to even start that conversation or even try to get to a place where we understand, well, what does that look like? Well, it definitely looks like that guy 
sitting on his porch thinking that it's okay to say, here's some lemonade, but we don't allow them in the house. <laughs> no. Okay. That's a part of it, definitely. And I think these performances allow for those conversations to, if they haven't started, to start and to recognize that conversations are the start of something. And that it's going to be a longer, more intentional journey to get from point A to point B. And a night like this, I think, emphasizes that. Who knows that what happened, if if all these events happened within weeks or months or years after this night, but the fact is they did. And there was impact. Negative, positive, there was impact. So these men were changed because of each other and because of their friendship. Didn't change their ideals, didn't change their beliefs, but it changed how they saw the world and the opportunity that each one had for their own arena of influence. And that to me is, I think, really significant because if we start to look at, you know, Coles's way isn't the right way because he does it like this. <laughs> I have no idea because I'm not, I don't have that visibility and I'm not a, I'm not a black guy. So I'm 0 for 2 when it comes to having any kind of influence into or judgment to say this is how it should be done. Maybe it's both. Maybe it's neither. Maybe it's more nuanced ways of doing things. And those are the approaches that I think this film allows us to kind of give us permission to have. Is like, all right, don't have to be a football player. You don't have to be a rock star. Don't have to be militant. <laughs> And you don't have to be the greatest necessarily. Maybe you can be all those things, or maybe you can be none. Maybe you can be the chef down the street, starts off as a cook, and maybe he found finds some influence because his recipes are now getting presented in other places. I don't know. That's a terrible analogy. But the fact is, influence can come from anywhere. And as long as you're around people who share a common ground, the important thing I think the film tries to hit on is the fact that you can move forward together even though individually you're doing things differently. That's good stuff. All right. Well, let's get to our connecting points before we finish out this episode. Kales, you want to get us kicked off? My connecting point was when Malcolm reaches into the um, closet of his hotel room, he pulls out a Bob Dylan villain, uh, vinyl record. And it's of his um, one of his famous songs, Blowing in the Wind. Now, I admit I'm not a big Bob Dylan head I have heard of him of course and I know what kind of music he makes but it was weird because I heard this song in Forrest Gump and I didn't realize that it was a Bob Dylan song so that was a new fact for me but Malcolm is playing it for Sam and he's telling he's pretty much exactly telling Sam like look at this this is a, a white guy a white artist who is not black like us but yet he's singing about oppression and he's able to hit the charts with that he's this song has charted higher than any of your hit songs have but he's not trying to embarrass him or look down upon him for that he's asking him like you could do this i mean you have a million blowing in the winds right inside of you right now you could make a song like this and you know sam the whole time has been talking about well i'm doing all this behind the scenes so where i have my own record label i own my own masters and i'm still getting paid of royalty checks my people are getting paid royalty checks from songs that the rolling stones are are playing across the world and yes that's good yes it's good that we have these discussions about black ownership and economic freedom jim even says that sam is the only person in this room 
who doesn't have to depend on a white man for his check. He he get, he can he cuts the middleman out and he gets straight to the money. But Malcolm is telling him you can do more. You're capable of more. And I think that's the key ingredient for when it comes to ideas about celebrity. You know, I'm not expecting for all celebrities to be role models and our heroes because they're they're not really entitled to because they're humans just like us. They have their good stages. They have their good traits and they may have their bad traits. But when it comes to being a black celebrity, there's always it feels like a hidden obligation to where, hey, if you make it to this platform, you have to give back because you know how hard it's been. You know, over the centuries, over gener- over past generations, including now, how still hard it is for Black people to break into some of these sectors of um, American commerce. You know, uh, we're seeing diversity now in Hollywood. We're starting to see um, a reckoning of um, an obligation and awareness of white supremacy from a lot more people on the other side of the conversation. We're starting to see that. But there are still some problems that are plaguing us. And if you have the power and the influence to speak to many people and to change their minds and to see them see a new reality, then you have to use it. Cause what good is having power if you're not going to use it for the greater good? You know, I'm not, I'm not telling, I'm not telling anybody that if they do have a, a, a certain amount of power that they have to be obligated to do these things. No, do what you ever you want to do. But if you're about, um, breaking down the old dusty doors of, older of old rules and like getting you know people to understand what black lives matter mean and understand that hey i'm doing something but i could be doing more to help out with what i'm doing and and it leads to the beautiful scene at the end where sam goes on to tonight's show and sings a change is going to come which is one of my all-time favorite songs and and it's a perfect protest and revolutionary song and the key for him getting to that moment, well, we don't know whether Malcolm inspired him in real life or not, but in the film, Malcolm opens that key to the door for him. He tells him, hey, I'm doing this out of love because I love you, brother. I see the talent. I see the success. You know, I know what you can do and I know what you're capable of. I just don't want to see you limit to yourself and just being essentially just a circus show and just playing it safe. Like, no, change doesn't come from playing it safe. You have to um, buck the trend. You have to do something that's going to make people talk and to get them thinking. And then that conversation can lead to other higher institutions getting in and understanding that maybe they have to change as well. And it all starts off the spark of one idea. And that scene between Malcolm and Sam was a tremendous moment for me. Good stuff. Well, for me, I think my moment is... Malcolm recounting Sam's show in Boston. And it was kind of a toss up. There were several moments in this movie that I was really connecting with, but what stood out to me in this particular moment is first of all, I love that all four of the characters are sitting on the bed and they're hearing the story. I love that Malcolm X is smiling as he's telling the story, something we don't see a lot. We don't see Malcolm X smile. So he's recounting a moment that was happy to him. And again, I think it goes counter to what we understand about Malcolm X being militant and never smiling, you know, that kind of sternness to him. And he's telling the story and it starts out like a funny story. Like you'd tell your friends, which shows the intimacy of these four individuals. 
and he goes through the whole spiel. And as he's telling the story, you can hear in the tone of his voice how impressed he is with what happens. So if you you don't remember, essentially, Sam Cooke is going on stage and the sound goes out, it's sabotaged. His band leaves him. And I think Sam Cooke says they leave like a bunch of slaves being freed or something like that. He makes a joke like that. And he's left on the stage, which I felt bad. I'm like, look, it's not his fault. Why are you booing this guy? It's not like he's doing this intentionally. And Malcolm X and his crew are about to leave. And then what he sees is the way Sam Cooke wins over this audience. He whispers to these girls, do you know Chain Gang? And so they start doing the the stomp and the chant. And then he starts singing in that amazing, smooth Sam Cooke voice. Malcolm X turns around and he doesn't hear Sam singing, but he sees the influence, that moment that Sam has over this audience. And he finishes the conversation essentially saying, Sam, you have this power. You have this ability. And it was this quiet moment, guys, where Malcolm says, essentially, in a tender way, I just, I don't want you to see that wasted. I don't want to see that wasted. It's almost as if he's recognizing the fact that Sam doesn't have to give up who he is. He doesn't have to change his mind. He doesn't even have to change the way in which he does things. He just needs to be honest with himself and be confident in the fact that he can influence people. And I think in that moment, Sam realizes that not only does he have an obligation, but that he wants to have that obligation. That's where I think the change was from my perspective, is that Sam was happy being who he was. Playing at the Copa, doesn't matter what the circumstances were. Living in the black Beverly Hills and justifying by saying we have a better view. And what we see is a guy who says, you know what? There is something in me. I think I just needed to essentially have permission to get it out. And I think it took, ironically, the guy that he was in conflict with most of the movie in that tender way to say, you've got it in you, Sam. You just need to let it come out. And of course, we get that moment later on where he is singing. And oh my gosh, I love hearing him sing, but I love seeing him sing. And the way in which he is just absolutely convicted by the words that he's saying, it's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. It's like being at a concert and you see the lead singer just completely get immersed into what he's singing. And it's beautiful. And the movie sort of allows us to realize that that conversation between him and Malcolm validates who he is, but also pushes him a little bit further. And so in that way, Malcolm is this almost like a little prophetic. He's like, look, I see your limitations, but know that they don't have to be limitations. They can be opportunities. And by telling that story, I think he shows Sam that, man, he loves what he does. In fact, before that story starts, he said, but you didn't know that I went to one of your concerts in Chicago. He goes, really? He said, but you didn't know I went to five of them. And I think that kind of took Sam back a little bit, saying that 
wow, this guy does listen and he does care about me and that I'm not just a puppet or don't need to be just a puppet for the black voice or the white voice, but that he does see value in what I bring because I do have this talent. And for me, the tenderness of that moment of that story being told is why it was my connecting point. Yeah. Beautiful. For sure. That was, I think that my second would have been probably that if not, I guess maybe my second would have been the Jim Brown thing, but for a wholly different reasons. Uh, my connecting point is more, I guess, a series of moments in the film and just what they meant. And it was really just the foreshadowing of Malcolm's assassination throughout the movie. We get several scenes where he just very casually, I mean, you'd almost miss him at times where he might mention someone watching him and we see it happening repeatedly, which is obviously telling us, Hey, listen, this guy was being followed. This is the way it was happening. It's the trigger I mentioned for them going to the roof is he feels like they're being watched and he tells them on the roof that he's having this autobiography written because he feels quote menace foreboding and death in the air. I mean, it's very haunting when you watching him. And I think that when you are given that context and reminded of that context, not just reminded of it in the sense that we know it's going to happen. Like you watch Malcolm X and you know what the end is. Like, you know, what's going to happen, but just, Having the character be self-aware in this moment, I think for me, certainly elevated the importance of the conversations. And it elevated the reasons that Malcolm was so passionate with his friends and with asking them to please get get hard, get get tough, and, and like get in this work more so that, that he thought that they needed to do, right? Be, become more activist than they were. And it's because he didn't feel like he's going to be there very long. He, he felt like he needed his friends to help carry this cause because he didn't think that he could be doing it forever. And that was tough for me. Like I did just, I felt that watching the movie throughout, I knew that, you know, especially the second time watching it, I knew that we weren't going to see that happen in this movie. That's not what this was about. That almost makes it worse because you just, you want to believe he just goes on to live just like this forever. And and he continues his career and his impact on the world and is able to make even more of a change alive than maybe his legacy has with him dead. And it, and the worst part, the worst moment, or the, I said, it's weird that I'm picking that my, both of my connecting points are really sad and angry, but like the call, phone call, Coles, you mentioned this where he calls his family. This is the one that really really slayed me because we see him talking to his daughters and he is telling her, you know, go to this specific book. And he's got this little code that he gives her. So she gets to be excited and find this thing. That's a little note that daddy left her. That brought me to tears. <laughs> and it's not because it's played as a sad scene. It's because I know what's going to happen to this man shortly after this night within a couple years. And I know it repositions him for me as a husband and as a father, not just as a speaker and not just as a militant minister fighting for civil rights and not even just as a friend of these other famous black men, 
but like as a person with a family. Like we don't think about that as much when people get assassinated. When John, when we talk about John F. Kennedy's assassination, we don't really talk about the kids and the wife and, and all of these things and like the family members and their suffering and their pain. But like this puts it in perspective for me and reminds me like there's, there's realness to this person. This human being is more than what I think of this person. Um, there's so much more to this life than I will ever know, will ever have seen because it's not my life and it's not mine to know. And just getting a small glimpse into that worked, I think so well for me in this story and it's bookended by the end. Coles, you mentioned this too with Sam Cooke singing and part of that epilogue scene is Malcolm being evacuated because of this fire and that last shot of him that we get in the film is just his autobiography there on the desk and his wife crying on the bed. No, and they know. They know what's happening, right? They know it's coming. He's writing this because he thinks it's going to happen. And then there's that ending quote, which really te it tells you like this is about Mal this is Malcolm's movie. If it's anybody's movie, and I mentioned before, I think Sam is like such a critical character, but like it is Malcolm's movie. He's the one that brings these people together. And the quote was, it is a time for martyrs now. And if I am to be one, it will be for the cause of my brotherhood. That's the only thing that can save this country. And he said that prophetically two days before he was murdered and it's just it's so tragic um but it makes me inspired and, and kind of invigorated like wanting to live in a way that would make this man proud because I, I believe in this man's ideals as well and so that foreboding sense throughout the movie kind of helped put me in a place where that was going to be my response to watching the film as a whole well and if this doesn't tell you that we all love the performance by Ben Adir, then <laughs> you have been listening to the wrong podcast. So British people, whatever, doesn't matter. I mean, the fact is my man Cassius is a Canadian. So let's just call a spade a spade. These are great performances all around, but yes, absolutely. Ben Adir, I think is if, if there is a story that this centers around, it's his story and a great connecting point, both of you guys. Well, that'll wrap up this episode of feeling film. We hope you out there in listener land have enjoyed this as much as we have. And if you did or didn't, Sound off in the Facebook group where all the action is. Aaron Kales, thank you guys for another great conversation, and we'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive and keep feeling filled.